HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio. Welcome to the second season of Magnifico Radio, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. I'm your host, Kate Black, and if you're listening live on Heritage Radio Network, that means it's Monday at 1 o'clock here in Brooklyn. And welcome. And if you found us through iTunes or Stitcher, welcome to you too. I hope you don't forget to subscribe. Each week I sit down with designers, makers, and leaders in sustainability to discuss the latest in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. This podcast is an extension of my blog, Magnifico.com. That's Magnifico.com. And my book, also called Magnifico, Your Head-to-Toe Guide to Ethical Fashion and Non-Toxic Beauty. When it comes to ethical fashion, many look to foreign production as one of the sources of the problem. In the 1960s, 98% of our clothes were made domestically. And in fact, 95% of it was made right here in New York City's Garment Center. And today that number has decreased to 3%. Can made in the USA be a reality for brands new and old? I'm joined by fashion designer and production process consultant Anthony Lalore to discuss domestic manufacturing and the future. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you. So nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you again. So I read this stat. I know you're a big fan of stats, so let's just jump right into the numbers. So I read, if consumers spend 1% or more on U.S. goods, they could create 200,000 jobs. Is that true for apparel, do you think? Wow. That's, I, I don't know. I, yeah, maybe. Uh, okay, let me frame it a different way. How much do so they much. spend now? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But let me just ask you, is it a problem of um, supply or demand? What's, what's the issue about made in, made in America? It's a pretty complex issue. Uh, a lot of it has to do with price, obviously, or maybe not obviously, um, and the actual product being made here. There just isn't as much of it made in the United States as there was, as you said, back in the 60s and d- during the growth of the middle class. 
And so we offshored because for a, for a myriad of reasons, political, financial, Price. pricing. Price. Um, but but now that we've had this focus to kind of bring it back, are we are we seeing it coming back? Is it is that a thing? Can you bring manufacturing back? I, I think the framing of it as coming back is part of the problem. Um, the horse is out of the barn. Uh, I don't know that it's coming back. Um, what I think needs to be focused on is can it be started again here? Can it be made here? Um, and and so much of that depends on the willingness of the audience to buy the product that's made or the ability of the audience to buy the product that's made. And I heard that it's it's actually it's multi-layered because when when manufacturing went offshore the factories either took the, the merchandise or took the um, machines or they sold them, but by and large, most of them are obsolete, right? We're talking 30 years of technology advances. So do we have even the technological resources here to bring manufacturing back? Yes and no. The, the yes part of it is sewing basically hasn't changed since the invention of the yeah, like the Singer-type sewing machine. Uh, there's still a lot of work that can be done using those machines. Um, the no part of it is the, you know, the, the CAD machines, the computer-assisted uh, design and development component of it. There's a, a fair amount of them, but not like in the large institutional factories offshore unless you go to you know some large institutional factories here uh, but those factories are they're they're primarily full <laughs> they're, they're they're full of work already um, because of their ability to produce at scale so this is a question, because um, when we do eco-sessions and we have this conversation about domestic production, we've had one in um, Toronto, we had one in L.A., um, and so this question of capacity makes everybody get a little bit edgy, and I'm not sure why, because it's true, isn't it, that we're at capacity? In a lot of factories, I believe we are. And so why is that, why is that an anxious kind of conversation? Because nobody wants to turn work away? No, I... Th I think it actually has more to do with people seeing scale as part of the problem. Um, fast fashion produces at, number one, a rapid rate. Number two, very high volumes at that rapid rate. So the, uh, the correlation um, can be made that if you're making a lot of something, it's bad. Um, I think if you're making a lot of something that's good, it's good. Okay. And then the capacity, because we had conversations, because I know for a client, um, you were trying to help them do domestic production, and you were running into all of these issues where you couldn't actually fit them in because nobody could fit them in because military gets priority. Um, 
the, a lot of the military programs are very big. Uh, the companies that do get them, I think, get contracts for three or five years. Um, the difference between a military contract and, uh, say, a large scale, uh, whether it's GAP or somebody like that, um, is you know the the military contracts you run the same thing in the same colors uh you basically don't even change thread thread colors uh fashion even if you're only doing five basic colors black navy khaki gray uh, light gray white something like that uh you're still changing threads uh, not that changing threads is such a big deal but it's a change and what happens with the, the military contracts is uh, a group of people in a production line learn a series of operations and they work toward bettering themselves and bettering the, uh, the, the process and, and the percentage, um, you know, if, if they're, they're priced out as being able to make 10 pieces in 10 minutes. Uh, if they make 11 pieces in 10 minutes, they're operating at 110%. And that's good for them, and it's good for the factory. Um, with, so I don't know, does that, does that uh, yeah. cover it? But I thought also that um, you had told me that military contracts have to take precedence because of, because of the way that we've set that up, that all military are going to be made in the U.S., so that when an order comes in, I thought it wasn't necessarily just choice. I thought some factories actually needed to move apparel over so that they could make room for... Well, if they have military contracts, they certainly don't want to bring something in that's going to you know, jeopardize it. Right. Um, you know, and the fact that uh, the military product, uh, I, it has to be very compliant, uh, meaning that it complies with the uh, laws or rules uh, set up by, I don't know, Senator Berry. I, I don't. I don't remember really what his name is, but is Berry, and it means that the stuff has to be manufactured domestically. So if you have that contract, you can't jeopardize it by bringing something else in. But that's something that we never really talk about, right? Like when when we look at fashion or ethical fashion, we don't actually take into consideration that all military clothing is made at home. Like that should be one thing that is celebrated a little bit, or something that's hugely, yeah, considered uh, as you know domestic production and domestic manufacturing providing the jobs that that this stat, this stat that I threw at you in the opening <laughs> uh, monologue is you know so making jobs and producing jobs so if if what would happen if we had more military like what happens if in this government we what happens if we go back to war what's going to happen to domestic manufacturing um it's it's actually good for domestic manufacturing uh you know the, the mills get more work uh more factories can be set up to uh t take on the overflow um it's it's unfortunately yeah war is good for business um philosophically <laughs> I, I don't like the idea of it but um 
So let's talk about New York City and the Garment District. Yeah. So what's happening here? In it's a it's a real estate play, right? As as it is in a lot of places. Everybody wants the land for something else, maybe lofts, condos, something a little bit more sexy than a manufacturing facility. So is that is that still a reality here in New York City? Sure it is. Um, and and I don't fault the landlords for wanting to make money. That's their business. Um, I, I fault them for not complying with zoning laws and uh, the rules that are set up uh, to operate within the district. Um, but if, if, um, if you can rent space at you know, $50 a square foot to uh, an internet company or doctor's offices or lawyers or architect or whatever it is uh, other than manufacturing, um, why would you want to keep a manufacturing facility in there that's paying 18 or $20 a square foot? Yeah, it's a financial thing. It's a financial thing. And so who, so what? In part, it's okay. a financial thing. And what's the other part? Um, I, I think certain administrations uh, that we've had over the years, um, are more interested in um, service jobs and tourism and and um, stuff like that uh, than they are in manufacturing in New York City, or especially Manhattan, New York City. When I say, yeah, I feel like that 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 is changing. I feel like the more that we see the news, the more that um, we see problems in supply chains abroad, the more we see um, examples of Rana Plaza, and now with the current administration talking about reshoring jobs, not necessarily apparel, but just reshoring jobs, I feel like we're in a very um, momentous moment for apparel, for brands who want to produce here. And and so my bigger question is maybe like, so if all the brands that wanted to produce here could, wanted to produce here, brought their business home, could they do it? Um, probably not. And for a, a couple of reasons. One is the uh, available skilled uh, workforce uh, to the space available uh, to do that in. And three, related to the first one, we really can't manufacture some things the same way domestically as they can be manufactured offshore. And a big part of that is um, price and, uh, and labor. And so we have special specialities here versus abroad. Like, what are we good at? Like, what can you, you're a young fashion brand, you move to New York, you're like, okay, I'm going to start my brand. What are we good at? The New York City Garment Center is great at development. It's great at idea generation. It's great at uh, the network of the 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 system um, I, don't, I don't mean to be so esoteric about that but within the the confines of the garment center uh, and it's not just the the 
garment center. It's primarily the garment center proper, but within the confines of the the garment center, you have uh, design, you have sales, you have pattern making, draping, sample making, production, all the different trims, uh, the fabrics, the marketing teams. You have all of these interconnected parts in one location. In a lot of cases, on the same block, maybe even in the same building. Um, that's unbelievable. Um, selfishly, I love that neighborhood for that reason. To manufacture in New Jersey, if your office is in uh, Midtown Manhattan, yeah, okay, it's a it's a transportation away. It's not the same as getting on a plane and flying halfway around the world. The same can be said of manufacturing in you know, Brooklyn or um, you know, other parts, other boroughs. There's a convenience level. Um, and it's not a laziness convenience. It's an opportunity convenience. If something goes wrong, and it always does, you're down the block, you're five minutes away. You can, as a young designer, uh, you know, you walk those streets, you're in and out of those buildings. It's very efficient. That's awesome. Okay, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Magnifico Radio, and I'm your host, Kate Black, and I'm here today with Anthony Lalore, fashion designer and production procurement consultant. Um, Anthony, you've been designing in the in New York City for over 30 years. Did you go to school? I did. Which one? I went to Parsons School of Design. Nice. Yeah. And um, you told me a lovely story the other day which just kind of I'm surprised we've been friends for so long and it just kind of came out and you're like oh did I ever tell you how I chose Parsons my cousin Grace would you like to kind of just give me the brief rundown for our listeners yeah sure um, my family names uh, of Italian descent uh, Lelore on my father's and father's father's side and Mirabella 
on my father's mother's side. Um, Grace Mirabella, editor of Vogue magazine uh, for for many years after uh, Diana Vreeland and uh, before Anna Wintour, um, is my father's cousin. So when I was in school, not Parsons, at Villanova, I had decided that um, the trajectory of uh, law or doctor or architect or something like that uh, wasn't uh, wasn't really right for me. So um, I told my parents that I wanted to get involved in fashion design. Uh, they were concerned about it a little bit, uh, but I explained it as a... Uh, a mix of art and commerce, which I, to this day, believe. Um, the art and the self-expression component of it, I like. So my father said, well, I don't know anything about that industry. He's a, you know, he's a lawyer. Um, so, you know, finish school and we'll, we'll figure out what you have to do, uh, where you have to go to school. Uh, let's get in touch with Grace and see what she says. So he called up Grace, Grace Mirabella. And uh, she said, well, send him in to the office. So here I am thinking, uh, wow, I'm going into fashion and I'm going to have a meeting with uh, the editor of Vogue magazine. So I get to her office and obviously I, I knew her through uh, family events, but it was a, you know, a, a bit distant. Um, so she asked me who I liked and I told her I liked Calvin Klein and I liked John Anthony. Um, she said, well, they're two completely different things. And I said, well, they're, they are, but they're, they're not. There are two ends of the spectrum, but there's a beautiful simplicity to both of them. So she said, oh, okay, I get that. Um, let's see what they say. So she picked up the phone and you know, dialed Calvin. Hey, it's Grace. Um, my cousin is here in the office. He wants to get involved in fashion. Um, what do I tell him? He said, well, tell, tell him to come spend a day with me. So... She made the arrangement, and uh, she did the same thing with John Anthony. Uh, so I went and I spent uh, a morning with uh, Calvin and uh, an afternoon with John. And uh, you know, Calvin said, go to FIT, and John said, go to Parsons. And I, the, the sensibility of Parsons for me at the time um, seemed more right so that's the that's what I shot for, and fortunately, I I got in and made it through the program. And it's so it's so fun. Of course, in New York, everybody has a story, yeah, right? Well. Um, and then so and then you worked as a designer for a long time. Then you launched your own label with your wife, yeah, Restore NYC, yeah, which was like one of the very first from almost uh, seed to shelf, ethically fashioned. Um, sustainable apparel lines. Right. You guys launched in 2007? 2000. Uh, yeah, a little earlier than that. I mean, we, we were conjuring it up uh, in, in 2004 and 2005. We had a business um, that designed and manufactured clothing for the cosmetic and fragrance industry, doing um, the uniforms that are worn by the men and women that work behind counter. Uh, 
So some of what we were doing was made domestically and some of it was offshore. The stuff that we couldn't make, like sweaters and things like that, that we couldn't make um, you know, right in the neighborhood, uh, we made where we could. And then the, the rest of it, uh, you know, that's the garment center and that's what it was, that's, that's what we did there. So we, we noticed that there was uh, a real inconsistency with what we were doing doing and what we were actually thinking and living and uh, yeah what we were doing was we were making tons of product that was being used as a promotional piece and then uh, discarded or you know something was being done with it we had no control over it at at that point Um, but we were living in a much more um sustainably sustainable mindset and and the two didn't jive so uh, you know we started looking around for you know what kind of uh, materials and fibers can we introduce and at least offer uh, as a uh, a solution as a variation and it turns out you know the stuff was just too expensive for these promotional things and you know one of the ones that uh, you know kind of sent us over the edge was uh, a promotion for uh, one of the the fragrance brands and we we made uh, uh, I, I think 30,000 banners and 17,000 tablecloths and it was just an enormous enormous for us an enormous order uh, but it was the equivalent of you know, 20 or 30 miles of fabric. It's an enormous amount of fabric that was going to be used for a promotion. And then, you know, they were dumb polyester tablecloths that had a logo on it. So they got thrown in the trash. We started thinking, geez, I mean, we're throwing away 25, 30 miles of fabric. So there's got to be a, got to be something better. So we started to find stuff. And uh, one of the companies that was open to the idea um, was Exhale Spa. They had one location at the time, and we pitched a uh, an organic Supima cotton micro-modal spandex blend, a rib, for a tank top. And it was, you know, it was just beautiful fabric if you get off on that kind of thing. Um, more expensive than they would have normally spent, uh, but there was the the sustainability component of it that fit with their mind body uh, spa uh, thing, and it fit with ours, and that kind of launched us in this new direction. Uh, there was also a change taking place in the spa and cosmetic uh, side toward uh, cosmeceuticals, the the blend of. Uh, you know, just better, better type product, um, better image, better message. So with that, we we decided that that's really the direction that we want to start to focus. We kept the business doing what it was doing, and because it was generating money, and it gave us the opportunity to uh, start Restore. Uh, so we had Restore Clothing, with Restore being an acronym. Uh, responsible, earth-friendly, sustainable, technological, organic, recycled, and ergonomic. And we we built this really tight box that we wanted everything to fit into, um, thinking along the lines of uh, constraint actually being a 
uh, a driver of creativity, uh, much the same way it is in uh, a sonnet or opera or uh, symphonies. There's a, a, a box that you fit into. And it turned out to be very good for us for a while. Um, and I say a while because it was too tight a box. Um, you know, we, we, we could have done things differently and still uh, fit the mold. Um, striving for perfection is great if you're willing to accept excellent. Well, and it was also, it was at the time when... Um really the visionaries were coming to light, like people who really thought that brands and businesses could be done in a different way, right? Like you, I put you kind of on the level of Richard Branson in terms of your like overarching vision. Well, then maybe maybe next time we'll have this conversation (laughs) on my private island or his private (laughs) island. I mean, maybe he made some different choices, um, but but there was kind of a singularity in the way that you guys launched that line, and there's a singularity that that kind of that rode through how you think about um, design and how you think about production, and and I just think it, I always find it really inspiring Thank because. You. You're welcome. Uh, because I just I think that you're you're a big believer in what could be. You're a big proponent of what should be. Um, you have this kind of moral compass about like we don't need to cut corners when it's very easy just to do the right thing the first time. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that that is all genuine and and really respectful. So what happened to restore? Also the economy, right? Yeah, that had something to do with it. It, it uh, you know we we couldn't scale it the way. It needed to scale, and it required uh, more of an investment than we were capable of making. Um, so we, we just closed it as a line and kept it open as a consultancy uh, where we've taken the, uh, the network and the relationships that we built and uh, kind of mixed that into other brands other uh into consulting gigs yeah uh, yeah which is great because i know that you teach at fit you teach um people get you for very cheap when they take your class <laughs> on what's it called um navigating sustainable design and manufacturing there you go so anybody who's looking for a very affordable but illuminating course at fit you should take that and then so you take all of the experience that you had with restore sustainable textiles um kind of the fit and the wear and the and the durability coupled with all of your um, extensive knowledge about domestic manufacturing and help other brands. I do. And I think the important takeaway on that is that it's more about the questions and less about the answers. So if you come to the class looking for answers, don't waste your money. Uh, Google the answer. But if you're more interested in learning about why and what the questions are to get to the answer, that's how I teach navigation. Um, and then in your private practice with your clients? Same thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, what I try to bring to the table is an area of expertise or a level of expertise, but it's also a, um, a coaching and a guidance 
to help them figure out the answers that are best for their business. Uh, yes, of course, I make introductions and uh, bring things to the table, but there's also a big um, Q and A that goes that goes on uh, with design questioning first the end result. You know, wh- where do you want it to be, and what do you want that product to be next? Well, you know, what's as part of the circular economy, what happens to the product that you're going to make? We we just make too much stuff. Hmm. There's a lot of people, but we make too much stuff. So, the, which circles us back to domestic manufacturing. So, right. if if people made things more, if if designers and brands made things more thoughtfully or a little bit. Um, I don't know, with longevity at its heart, um, do you think that we have a future in domestic manufacturing? Do you think we can not bring the original horse back, but we can actually have a stable again? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I think it's a, a little too lofty to think that everything will be that way because... Even though everybody has to wear clothing, you don't have to buy new clothing. And in a lot of cases, you can't afford to buy new clothing. It's more important to have food and medicine and shelter. Um, So the, the, the thinking should become... The, the necessity of the clothing uh, as as art and commerce, as a representation of who you are, and uh, that should not be confused with who you are keeping up with the Joneses, mm-hmm. having a new dress to go to the party. Oh, I can't go to the second party in the same dress. Uh, so... Awesome. Um, and so if people wanted to hire you or find out more about your um, contract business or, or contract you to do maybe some spa consulting for any of their uniforms, how do they find you and where do they reach you? The easiest way to reach me is just anthony at restoreclothing.com. All right. Okay. R-E-S-T-O-R-E clothing.com. Um, so that's very kind of you to... Uh, Allow me to say that. Yeah, of course. Uh, Come on yeah. now. That's what the radio is for. Yeah. I highly recommend. And anybody who has questions, um, particularly about textiles and sustainability and design, Anthony is your man. Um, and that's all the time that we have. So thank you, Anthony, for being my guest. Thank, thank you. you to Magnifico Radio Engineer, David Tatashore. Thank you to Metro Jesus for the music, which you can also find on iTunes. And please visit Magnifico.com. Sign up for our newsletter. And thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, questions, or want to be a sponsor or recommend a guest, please email me at radio at Magnifico.com. Until next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.